More than half a million Americans experience homelessness each night. I'm J.R. Jameson. And I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Today on The Facing Project, we'll explore life without a home. We want to start off by saying that neither of us are homeless and have never had to experience homelessness. In fact, until about 10 years ago, and I'm really embarrassed to say this, the image that came to mind when I would hear homeless was of an old man, disheveled hair, scraggly beard, begging for money on the street corner with a cardboard sign. I guess I thought if folks were homeless, they were either lazy or had an addiction problem or they were mentally ill. I think that's a pretty deep-seated stereotype that we all hold or have held, and it's right in some ways, mainly that 70% of the homeless are men, and white men make up the largest of the group, although African and Indian Americans are overrepresented. Now for the beggar bit, there's this narrative that maybe these guys are begging during the day, pulling in $80,000 a year, and driving cars to their homes. This millionaire panhandler myth even shows up in literature. Sherlock Holmes crossed paths with such a character in a story from 130 years ago. Or there's this thought that these individuals are going to spend all of the money on alcohol and drugs. A survey was done in San Francisco of panhandlers at Union Square. On average, they made less than $25 per day, and 94% of them used the money on food. Two things changed my opinion on what homelessness is, and that was stories collected in Facing Homelessness back in 2013 and Facing Sex Trafficking in 2014. Those stories showed me what it means to be homeless is much deeper than the image of a person on a corner and the narrative I created in my own mind. In reality, homelessness can happen to anyone. CBS News reported in January of 2019 that 40% of Americans are only one missed paycheck away from being homeless. Take a moment and think about it. What would you do? Where would you sleep this very night if you didn't have a home? If you didn't have the resources to afford a hotel room? if you had exhausted any help that family and friends were able to offer, if you didn't have family or friends, where would you eat if you couldn't afford your next meal? In 2012, Ari Shapiro on Talk of the Nation, for you fellow NPR nerds, interviewed David Pirtle, a man who had experienced homelessness. Ari asked what it was like on the worst nights when he couldn't get into a shelter, and here's what David had to say. Well, not being in a shelter during the coldest nights is just, you know, fear of not waking up in the morning. It's fear of freezing to death. But you learn how to adapt. You learn how to, you know, stuff newspapers in your clothing to keep warm. So that's the harsh reality of what it can mean to be homeless. You might fall asleep and not wake up. Today's story comes from Facing Homelessness in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The storyteller shares his life not as a homeless person, but as someone who happens to live outside. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Lauren Nill from the Empowerment Plan an organization based out of Detroit, Michigan, that helps families become financially secure and ensures that once someone enters their program, they don't have to return to homelessness. Outside Living. James' story, as told to Danny Pye, from Facing Homelessness in Fort Wayne, Indiana, performed by Michael Brockley. I've been living outside for a while now, but that's going to change soon. I got some things in the works, you know what I mean? But it's not easy. Here we don't have safe houses. In other states, like Michigan, when winters are harsh, there are places where you can go to try to keep warm. You got 12 hours to escape the cold. 
and maybe somebody going through that can use that to get a job. In Fort Wayne, there's the rescue mission and the Salvation Army and halfway houses, but you got to have money for that. There are free shelters, like day shelters that provide places for showers, laundry, and basic hygiene, and night shelters that provide short-term relief of up to three months for a place to sleep, meals, and support services. But these are temporary solutions, and most shelters have strict sober policies that prohibit some folks from taking advantage of these options. Some of the longer-term alternatives do come at a cost. Halfway houses, for example, are transitional housing for up to two years that help residents as they work toward permanent housing. The fee is typically 30% of an individual's income, but some programs pay that money back to the resident once they leave. Overall, there's a growing need for shelters. With only 4,000 active shelters nationwide, these short-term housing options can fill up fast and leave about 30% of the homeless population without a bed each night. What people got to understand is this is situation living. It can happen to anyone. It's easy to get separated from your money. That guy in the Bible, Job, he's a good example. Satan took everything he had, so he would turn on God. Job refused to do that and went bankrupt. That can happen to anybody. You could have a big house, maid service, and you get complacent about material things. And you can end up sleeping outside. I had a friend who was homeless for four years and moved into an apartment. His situation changed because of the people he met out here. Let's dive a little deeper into who is homeless and why. Like JR mentioned at the top of the show, on a given night, there are more than a half million people who experience homelessness, and in a year, 1.4 million Americans will spend a night in a shelter. But for obvious reasons, this isn't the easiest of populations to measure. So with that caveat, some more stats. 33% are people in families with children, 7% are under 25, 7% are veterans, 70% are men, 49% are white. That said... African-Americans are more likely than white people to experience homelessness in the United States. They represent only 9% of the general population in Los Angeles County, yet make up 40% of the population experiencing homelessness. So structural racism in employment, healthcare, criminal justice, and housing play a part. Housing. That's the main reason people are homeless. The rent and housing prices are too high. In New York City, there is actually a political party called The Rent is Too Damn High. It's led by Jimmy McMillan, who has this amazing facial hair that really can't be described on radio. He's run for mayor several times, and although his self-founded party is sort of tongue-in-cheek, he makes an important point. Housing is unaffordable. The highest rates of homelessness are in New York City, D.C., California, Hawaii, all places where housing is really expensive. West Virginia, one of the poorest states in our country, has one of the lowest homeless rates. There, the average home is valued at $98,000. Compare that to California with one of the highest homeless rates and the average home costs nearly $550,000. So there are a lot of factors that may lead to someone experiencing homelessness, but the leading one is, as Jimmy would put it, the rent is too, well, high, and people have to seek refuge elsewhere. In college, 
They teach you that you'll become a success. But there are educated fools. A third grader could understand that once it gets cold, you've got to get warm. If you get hungry, you find food. A lot of people take to go into jail once it gets cold. You find ways. Me, I like to read. The library's full of books. Jails and libraries have been places of refuge for the homeless. Now, on a surface level, I can't imagine jail being a safe haven. But the Guardian found that out of 400 homeless individuals surveyed, roughly 30% have admitted to committing petty crimes to get time in jail for access to food and health care. If faced with full shelters and a night on the streets, maybe I would consider it a place of refuge. In return for a break from the elements, a meal, and an opportunity to see a doctor, those options put it into perspective. Libraries, too, are a break from the streets. They are free to enter, offer electricity, internet access, and since the late 2000s, the American Library Association has been proactive by adopting a set of policies to serve the poor and homeless as part of their overall equity, diversity, and inclusion program. These policies set standards for libraries across the country. One of the policies in this plan states that libraries will promote equal access to information for all persons and recognizes the urgent need to respond to the increasing number of poor children, adults, and families in America. These people are affected by a combination of limitations, including homelessness, which hamper the effectiveness of traditional library services. Therefore, it is crucial that libraries recognize their role in enabling poor people to participate fully in a democratic society by utilizing a wide variety of available resources and strategies. And how that translates into real time includes removing barriers to access to information like fees for service and lifting overdue charges. And some homeless folks like James, our storyteller, like to read. When my situation changed, I wasn't trying to fight to stay inside. That word, homeless, I can't relate to that because I made my home with God a long time ago. My home is wherever we lay it down together. A homeless person is someone who doesn't have a house and hasn't found a home with God. I have a home. I just live outside. Every night of the week except Saturday, we got a different group that shows up to help. That tells me there's some good people in this world. About a year ago, this guy started showing up asking if people needed assistance. I think what he does is a good thing. And I wouldn't have met him if he hadn't been here with a cheeseburger in his hand, asking if I needed a blanket. If I was raising money to support a thing, his group, I'd support it. But it can be tricky. Some of these people you meet out here, you get a good feeling about. Sometimes they bring other people you aren't so sure of. Other people who might have other intentions. It's interruptions, just like TV. I could be sitting here reading my National Geographic and be interrupted. And maybe I don't want to talk to them. Maybe I just want to sit here, eat my cheeseburger, and read. 
What do you do when you walk past a homeless person on the street? Do you look at them? Do you give them money? I've traveled to slums, dumps, and shanty towns in some of the poorest places on the planet. And I think I struggle to comprehend to see homelessness the most in my own town. In fact, researchers found that tourists on slum tours in India looked at residents as a positive part of a community and culture, while they perceived the homeless in their own communities as lazy or addicts. We are harsher critics of the poor in our own communities. We fear poverty. We are made uncomfortable by poverty. We put the responsibility on the poor and not on ourselves until we meet them. Then, how do we help? First, we need at least to listen. Then, as in the case of James, maybe they don't even want our help. And there are people who are helping. In one case, the Empowerment Plan. We want to welcome to the show Lauren Nill, the Community and Outreach Manager from the Empowerment Plan, an organization based out of Detroit, Michigan, whose vision is to help families become financially secure and ensure that no one has to return to homelessness once they've hired them. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Your vision is pretty bold and powerful. Tell us more about how you do that. Yeah, I think it takes into account the whole person, is that we aren't doing a cookie cutter mission here that applies the same program, the same tactic to every single person and focus on the numbers and getting people in and out in a quick way. I think, um, you know, we consider ourselves transitional employment mission, which is uh, we hire single parents who are living in the shelters here in Detroit uh, to come into our facility and we train them to produce a sleeping bag coat or a coat that transforms into a sleeping bag uh, that we then distribute around the world to people in need. And we focus on every person when they come in, meeting them where they are and not making any assumptions about who they are, how they ended up in the shelter or where they want to go. So uh, there's a study that recently came out of the University of Michigan that talks about the success of programs uh, such as this. And you really find the most success the longer the program lasts and the more individualized the program is towards the person who is in the program, the more success you'll find once they exit the program. They don't have to have any experience knowing how to sew, any experience in manufacturing. We will teach them everything they need to know. They're hired in immediately, uh, 40 hours full-time at a wage that is higher than minimum wage and has the ability to grow from there. And then once they're in the program, we have what we call a paid-to-learn model. And 60% of your paid time is spent on the production floor, but the other 40% of your time is in supportive programming. So anything you can think that you might need to help you uh, grow and pull yourself and your family out of poverty, we help you get that supportive programming. So that includes GED classes, Uh, In a city like Detroit, it's very hard to have a job if you don't have transportation. So we have a contractor who comes in and does driver's training. Uh, We have financial health and literacy, uh, domestic violence support. We have a clinical therapist who is on site part-time. We have a career advancement manager because it's important that we're not teaching people how to be, you know, sewing machine operators and then saying, you're going to be a seamstress for the rest of your life. 
this is right now. Right now, for the next two years, 30 months, uh, you're going to help us make these coats. But, you know, you might want to go on to nursing uh, or welding. We've had people go into customer service, into teaching. There's lots of different places to go. If, and if you want to stay in industrial sewing, we have an apprenticeship that we just started with the Department of Labor that once a client finishes, they will have a Department of Labor certification that they can take on with them to get better employment. So it's really this holistic, rounded model that meets each person where they are when they come in the door. And how did all of this get started and how did that model develop? Yeah, so the empowerment plan started with our founder and CEO, Veronica Scott, And she was a college student at the College for Creative Studies here in Detroit. Uh, She was an industrial design student, had no experience in fashion, sewing, anything like that, had no plans to go into the nonprofit world. But for a class project one semester, the project was to design a product that filled a need in your community. And she chose the need of homelessness. It was right in the time when Detroit was hitting bankruptcy. We had some of our highest homelessness levels. Uh, that we'd ever seen in the city. And it was also something that was personal to her, having experienced parents who suffered job loss, evictions, um, home insecurities. So she spent hundreds of hours going into the shelters here in Detroit and working with the end user to design a product um, that would fit the need of somebody who is living on the street. Uh, She originally planned on making a coat that turned into a tent that sort of evolved into a coat that turned into a sleeping bag. Um, and the, pro- the project was just to make one of these. Uh, but as she was doing her research, uh, the people she was working with started their own wait list, <laughs> signing up for m- the next few that she would make. Uh, and at the same time, just as she was finishing the project, a woman in one of the shelters approached her and, and very angrily said, I don't need a coat. What I need is a job. And that what I kind of call, you know, Veronica's aha Oprah moment, where you see two needs can be met uh, by one product, that she can hire homeless single parents working in the shelters to make this coat, give somebody full stable employment. And then you can make this coat and get it to somebody else who's in need, um, who might not be ready to come into the shelter, or maybe there aren't enough beds in that city at the moment to get somebody into a shelter, and it can help save their life overnight. So she started with hiring three women out of the shelter that she had been working at at the moment. And they were in an old utility closet, making these coats, barely budgeted for anything beyond the bare essentials. Uh, And here we are seven years later, and we have just moved in about almost two years ago now into a 21,000 square foot facility. We currently employ 50 uh, program participants or employees who are on our production floor with another 11 management employees who are helping to manage um, case management, career advancement, um, as well as funding and distributing the coats that we make. Lauren, tell me more about this coat. Yeah, so the coat obviously was designed by our CEO and founder, Veronica Scott, when she was in school. Um, And what's happened over the past seven years is that the coat has evolved a bit as we've had feedback from end users from our seamstresses working on the production floor and from 
those who hand them out directly to those in need. Uh, the coat is a heavy-duty, one-size-fits most coat, and it can be rolled up and worn over the shoulder as a bag when not in use. It can be worn as a coat, and folded up inside of the coat is what we call the foot bag, which is a detachable bag that can be used to cover your feet and attached to make a full sleeping bag. Um, you know, it's not just for somebody who's sleeping outside. There are people who have a shelter at night, but then have to be outside during the day. Um, and when they're sitting outside, that extra layer on their legs and feet can prevent against frostbite. Uh, one thing I've learned since I've been in this job is that warming centers aren't necessarily warm. Um, sometimes they are 62 degrees and you have to sit in a chair the whole time you're in there. So a warm coat and something that protects your legs and feet can really be appreciated. Um, it costs $125 to sponsor a coat. And uh, through the generous generosity of our donors, we can give those coats to people who reach out directly to us, including churches, uh, outreach organizations. Or if you know somebody and you have someone in mind, uh, you can sponsor a coat and we can ship it to you to hand out. Uh, we have communities across the country um, and across the world that even fundraise to get coats that they can hand out to those in their um, community. There's a veteran out of San Diego who hosts a fundraiser in his community every year to get coats to veterans in need living on the streets in San Diego. Um, the Ally Coalition out of New York, we work with them to fundraise for coats that they get to their partner shelters supporting LGBTQ youth. Um, across the country who um, experience homelessness. So we can help a lot of different people through our partnerships with distribution organizations and the sponsorship of this great coat. It is waterproof, heavy duty. It can last many seasons. Um, you know, we want to give people dignity. And that was Veronica's goal in making this coat. There's a lot of times people living in poverty and who are homeless the coat and clothing they receive is always hand-me-down. It's always been used dirty, maybe broken. Um, and this is a brand new coat that is just yours. We don't put any logos or labels on the outside of our coat. Uh, we use recycled materials as much as possible in producing the coat um, so that we're not creating a uniform for the homeless so that you see our, the coat and you go, oh, that's a homeless coat. I know they're homeless. It comes in different colors. This style, um, the make of it sometimes changes. Uh, so we're trying to give as much dignity as possible to those who might need to use it or wear it. It's not, um, you know, homelessness is not a permanent part of your life. It's not a defining part of you. It's just where you are at this moment. Um, so there's much dignity and help as we can give, even if it's just through this coach. And, and where can people learn more about yeah. your work? Yeah, our website, empowermentplan.org. There you can sponsor a coat, you know, $125 to sponsor a coat, and it affects the person who receives the coat, but you're also supporting the people who make the coat and their entire family. So one coat has the power to affect the lives of up to five people. Uh, you can also help support our uh, programs through our transportation fund, education fund, child care. Um, and you can just learn more, more about what we do and the people that we work with. Great. That's fantastic. And, and so how widely have these coats been dispersed? Uh, in, since 2012, we have produced and distributed over 35,000 coats. We have distributed them in all 50 states. 
10 Canadian provinces or territories, and then 18 countries on six continents, uh, every continent except Antarctica. Um, and if you know somebody who's going there, uh, let me know because I would love to get my last continent, get a flag on Antarctica before the end of the year. Wow, that would be a really tough yeah. place to live outside. <laughs> I, I'm hoping there's no, there's not much of a homeless population. Yeah. In Antarctica. Although I'd be up for the trip to deliver the coats there. I've always wanted to go to Antarctica. For the workers in your program, how are they identifying? I know you had mentioned that uh, you don't discriminate based on interest if folks are in a shelter and, and they mm-hmm. are interested in the program. But is it similar to other job openings where you only have so many positions available to hire? And uh, how are folks, do they apply for the program? Or how does that work? Tell us about the process. Yeah, so it's not a traditional job opening that you'd see it posted on uh, Indeed or on LinkedIn or something and you are open to apply. We've developed really strong relationships with shelters here in the city. And what we do is we send our director of HR, our production director, um, and our case managers into these shelters. Um, they go at least once once a month to sort of have open houses and have conversations with the people who are living in the shelter. Uh, and then they come back and they follow up if somebody expresses interest. And it's a longer process of multiple interviews and then bringing them on um, site here uh, to interview them while they're uh, visiting and getting to see exactly what happens because we can't make the assumption that like we fit everybody or that everybody is going to fit us um so we really want to find that that good balance um because it does take a lot you know it is expected that you will be here 40 hours full time Uh, we help with transportation and getting you here we help uh, with meals while you're here and we try to help as much as possible with child care as well um like i said we focus on the single parents because it's more than just when you raise a uh, person out of homelessness, you know, it can be just one person. But when you look at a single parent or a head of a household, you're raising an entire family out of the shelter. And many times um, people can get stuck. Families can get stuck in shelters for generations. Uh, it's, you know, that kind of catch where to move out of a shelter, they need to see proof that you have stable housing. But in order to obtain stable housing, uh, landlords want to see that you have steady income and a job. And to get a job, most employers want to see that you have a house that is not a shelter because they um, make assumptions about people who are living in shelters. So you, it's very hard to break out if you can't find a foot up um, or a way out the door. So we see that we can help an entire family escape out of the shelter system and get them set up in stable housing, um, prepare them financially uh, for health and everything that they need. So when they do leave our program, that the next big bill, the next great life event won't send them back into the shelter as it would before. You know, people who are, are with us generally approach that cliff where they are making too much money and will be kicked off a lot of uh, government services and government support. So our goal is to see them through that and help them maintain financial stability um, so they'll have more success when they leave. Because that's very difficult um, income-wise to be getting all the support and then all of a sudden you lose it and and you're even further behind again. Um, So looking at those whole families, you can end up getting a child out of a shelter into a home 
they then have a regular school, a stable school situation. Um, our chief development officer t tells a recent anecdote of walking around downtown Detroit recently, and she ran into the son of one of our first program participants. And he was living in a shelter when his mother started his job here, but they were able to get into stable housing. Um, and then they were able to get him uh, to graduate, get him into college, and through our connections, get him an internship at Quicken Loans downtown. And now five years later, he still has his job at Quicken Loans um, and is doing really well. And that's the type of growth you wouldn't typically see within five to 10 years in one family. That would take generations to, to pull somebody to that point. And we're seeing it happen um, much quicker. Yeah, you mentioned assumptions. What do you feel through your work is the biggest misconception of homelessness? I think when you say the word homelessness, I think we all get a, a picture in our mind of what this person looks like, why this person is there, um, what their temperament might be like. And I have found um, just through my own experience uh, going into shelters and working with the participants on our floor that no two people are, are alike. We have veterans who have worked for us. We have a woman who had her master's in biochemical engineering, uh, people who have graduated college. Um, you know, life events happen that, you know, you can't foresee and you can't expect. Most of us are only one big life event away from being in a shelter, being homelessness. Uh, the death or illness of your uh, partner uh, losing a job at an unexpected time, having to come home, um, move back in to take care of a sick parent. All of that can destabilize uh, our very fragile financial situation. Um, and that's what happens to a lot of people who, who we talk to and who we see. So um, a lot of the assumptions when you go out, um, for me, when you go out into the suburbs or you go with somebody who doesn't educate themselves or really think about, you know, that empathy piece of how easy it is that that could be you. Um, that idea that, you know, just go get a job, you know, just do this. There's, you know, they always need workers. It, it's much more complex than that when you have to be, you know, taking care of family members or um, you can't get yourself to a job because you don't have transportation. There's so many other factors that lead people to get stuck where they are uh, rather than just, quote-unquote, laziness or substance abuse or depression. There's um, a lot of factors that affect a person and um, where they are when they come to uh, find us. So I think that we've all had that experience where we've been walking down the street, we saw someone who was homeless, and we've wanted to help in some way, but we're not sure how. Like, Do we work to address immediate needs, or do we work on root causes? And so, like, what advice would you give to and you know our listeners who are hearing this right now, and they they want to to do something, but they're just kind of maybe not because they're not sure what to do? Yeah, I think um, the first thing is kindness. Um, there's hum that's a human, that's a person. People uh, are often uncomfortable with uh, homelessness or somebody they meet. Um, and so they avoid eye contact, they don't speak to that person, or they even treat that person callously, when just being kind um, and showing um, care can be a huge step for that person. Um, I think there's also the idea, again, of not 
letting your prejudices or assumptions get in the way and take a chance um, on a person. If you have a job opportunity, if you're in a place to be able to employ, um, just because somebody might not have uh, a stable housing situation at the moment, you still could be able um, to help them. I think, you know, what you said about do you help immediate needs or do you help the root causes, we kind of, um, we have this bifurcated mission that we do both at the same time, is that not everybody is ready um, or able to immediately get into a job or get into a shelter. Uh, but by having these coats that transform into a sleeping bag, we are able to empower governments, organizations, you know, local governments, um, shelters, outreach organizations to begin conversations with people who are living outside um, or having other issues that they can give this code out and start a conversation that might lead to more help and support for that person. And on the other side of our mission is that we are going out and we are helping to employ and support um, and immediately find uh, housing and address all of these issues that lead people to getting stuck. You know, it's not just a job. It's not just housing. It's not um, just one root cause that leads to homelessness. It is a compilation of multiple issues that lead someone to being stuck there. Um, so you have to look at the whole person and the whole issue of everything that needs to support a person as they come out and then stabilize them long-term coming and staying out of homelessness. Uh, our mission has been incredibly successful in that since we started in 2012, we have supported 85 families in coming out of the shelters and um, coming out of poverty. And not a single family has gone back to the shelter since they have been hired or have left. Um, That's great. So I think it, it yeah. takes time. I think, you know, a lot of Government officials, a lot of politicians are looking for that magic pill, that magic bullet that is affordable and quick and can save a lot of people at once. Um, and unfortunately, I think it takes time and it takes investment to really treat each human um, individually and get them the most help that they can have. Lauren Nill, Community and Outreach Manager from the Empowerment Plan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your time. We want to leave you with a short poem. It too was collected in Facing Homelessness in Fort Wayne, written by Curtis Chrysler. The man in the last pew, for the man with the same name as mine. It's a little thing for me to live through these cards. They show the places that make my mind smile, places I'd live in if I knew magic or didn't have the job of owning all the dreams of my past. Christmas cards are easier to live in. I've collected more than 3,000 cards since 1985. The reds and the blues that glitter have a different meaning when I can put my hands on the edges of their frame. People make me scratch my head. People take more time to show off true colors. And people forget people are not all hard. When in state's hands, I thought I would miss people, but the medicine made me only depend on the movies in my mind. Scenes where Mama sat in our living room while I read how the words to the Bible move in this life without the worry of her suffering. Suffering comes like daylight into my bedroom now, 
taking me out of the darkness into creaky pews on Mission Church on Pearl Street. I bring with me mama memories, the birthday and Christmas cards I hand out to the worn faces I have come to smile at in my comeback to the world. I could be a mad dog about it all, but I have food, the warmth of my apartment, and how God put new light in my head. The new moved out the old, and no institution will tie down my dreams now. I accept all my nightmares, and all bright daylight shining, too. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your host, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm-hmm.